Dear Father, open our hearts, concentrate our minds, uh, settle our fears, Father, and remove our distractions. Prepare us, Father, for your word. The work, Father, to be done is by your will, both in our minds and in our lives as we live it out. We trust you to do that work. We pray you would remove obstacles in our life, whether it be by our, our own decisions and our, uh, our own resistance, Father, to living according to your word, or whether it be others in our life, Father, who might try to persuade us away from the path you've given and, and the instructions you provide. Whatever may be in our way, Father, I pray we would have the courage to overcome those things with your Holy Spirit working in us. Let us be prepared, Father, to uh, witness to others by what we learn. Just do all those good works, Father, in us, even as we study tonight, so that we might be good servants and uh, good stewards of this word that you've entrusted to us. We uh, give you the praise that you deserve, Father, in your holy name, I pray. Amen. Luke 23. So tonight, we study the death of our Lord Jesus. So much of the gospel that we've studied over the past weeks and months leading up to tonight has been pointing to the very moment we're about to study, to the death of Christ Himself, to the moment that He dies on the cross. Jesus Himself predicted His death no less than three times in the Gospel of Luke, and He alluded to it many times more than that. So even in His own words and even in His own teaching, it's clear enough that He did not come to be a good teacher. He did not come so as to show us examples of how to live or how to think. He came to die and in that death achieve everything that the Father had appointed to Him. So it only makes sense that tonight as we focus on His death, we give some time as well to an understanding of its significance and, and really to understand its call upon our lives, though we've said that as well along the course of this study, so I don't need to repeat it all. But tonight we'll focus our attention perhaps more than others have on that point. It's also worth noting that the entire Old Testament itself exists ultimately to point to three moments in human history. First, it records the moment of man's fall, which we know resulted in a spiritual debt being owed to God by each of us. Secondly, it pointed over and over again and continues to point today to our God-appointed need for a rescuer, for a Savior to remove that debt. That the first event necessitates the second Adam's fall requires a debt be paid. Finally, the the Bible points to a third moment in history, one that is yet to come for you and I. It is to the glory and the joy that awaits all of those who place their trust in the Lord. And for that rescue that we know will come one day to those who hope for the glory that we've been promised. So there's three points, if you will, in human history that the whole Bible is directed toward. The fall and its consequence the redemption and its importance, and the glorification and joy that awaits all those who understand the first two points. Tonight, in looking at that second point, the moment when the debt is paid, looking at when this entire plan is consummated by the death of a perfect God-man, a death he did not deserve, we're going to focus our attention on really the critical moment of human history. So, in another way said, we're studying the whole Bible tonight, if not in substance, at least in its meaning. And that is the death of Christ. It was a death, by the way, that satisfied the wrath of a holy and just God whose anger burns against sin and demands justice. But also a God who is satisfied to set that anger against His own Son rather than against you and I, which is the pure definition of love. But before we get to all of that, 
as we stand tonight in chapter 23 and verse 39, we're about three hours away from Jesus' death. It's noon on a Thursday, sometime in April, the day of Passover. And given the terrible suffering that accompanied the crucifixion, I think it's fair to say the next three hours we're about to study were the longest three hours Jesus ever experienced in his earthly life. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I really look forward to getting to this lesson as I saw this text coming in the past few weeks because uh, there are a few moments in the Gospel that I think rivet our attention more than perhaps others. And I think there's a reason why the story of the thieves on the cross has survived in our, in our culture, in our corporate memory. Why that moment is so well known among most Christians. You know, here again, Luke really provides us with a unique perspective and one that's become an iconic image in the church. And it's interesting that really only Luke records it. Matthew and Mark make a passing reference to the thieves and to the fact that they were insulting Jesus, but only Luke gives us the story of their conversation. So much like the prodigal son, another iconic picture within the church provided only by Luke, here again, we we look to Luke in thanks for what he was willing to record in these verses. Because I think it's fair to say, this conversation, which we're now about to study, is as important to establishing sound Christian doctrine as any other single conversation you will study in all the Gospels. Because of this story, you and I have probably been saved from a life of misery under false teaching and false doctrine because of all that this story addresses. So we have a little bit to talk about here tonight. So we have Jesus and these two men hanging on crosses next to one another. One thing I ought to mention that I think I I failed to mention last week as we look at this scene again, on this hill, have you been left with the impression for, from perhaps studying this in the past or seeing movies that Jesus is elevated way off the ground? You know, maybe his feet are at like the level of your head and his head itself is maybe 10 feet off the ground. No, that's not correct at all. Some of the details we'll see tonight will simply will, will help illustrate the fact that that was very different from the truth. The truth is you probably could have gone up and just touched him on the forehead. The, there's no reason to elevate him very high. I just have to set him upright. And so the cross is not some huge object way, way off the ground. Uh, Jesus is barely maybe 6 to 10 to 12 inches higher than the ground itself in this cross. So they're very low. They're very accessible to the crowd. They're right there with the crowd as the execution takes place. Jesus, we remember, was crucified because he was king of the Jews. Remember I said last week that there's the inscription above the head of anyone who was crucified, which contained the charge that was the reason for his punishment. So, of course, you would assume above the heads of these thieves, they would have had a plaque that that suggested their offense. You know, stealing, robbery, whatever it would have been. And which was a capital offense in that day, under Roman law. Jesus, likewise, we know, had king of the Jews. 
One thing I also want to mention to you is last week I said that the statement, the king of the Jews, as it was recorded in Luke, would have been written in Greek, would have been written in Aramaic, would have been written in Hebrew. What's interesting, though, is in the way that that would have been written in Hebrew, the words in Hebrew that mean Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, would have been written with four Hebrew words. Those four Hebrew words, if you had taken the first letter of each of those four words and put them together, those four letters spell Yahweh. And if you've ever seen the little inscription above Jesus that's four letters, I-N-X-S, that's the Greek version of those four letters. So you're looking at the irony here, of course, as God designed it, was that though they said Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, when they wrote it, the first four letters were the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh. And that later became the reason why you see those four letters in Greek now represented in some pictures of the crucifix. Sort of an interesting little side point. But going back to this moment, you now have the thieves on either side being crucified for a legitimate offense, for stealing. And as I said, it was a capital offense, which means it was punishable by death. They were justly condemned to death. And since they now hang on a cross, I want you to think about this for just a minute, because our way of executing people, very different, obviously, from the way the Romans chose to do it for for men like these thieves or for Jesus. Since they're now hanging on a cross, their death is only a matter of time. It's a disturbing thought, perhaps, as we consider what was going on in that moment. But I want you to know these men don't consider themselves to be likely to be rescued. It's not as though they're men like today who sit on death row, who may have some hope all the way up to the last minute, perhaps, that right before the executioner pulls the switch or before the drugs go into their veins or whatever the the style of execution is, that somebody's going to run to the rescue, the governor's going to call, the phone on the wall is going to ring. There's at least some hope until the very last second that they won't actually be killed. Not these men. I mean, they're alive, but they're dead. They're as good as dead. They're not coming down off that cross. Death is only a matter of time. So they're standing and they're in this interesting state, this, this moment of opportunity, this window, where they're dead, but they're not. They know they're dead. There's no doubt in their mind they're on the process to death. They just haven't experienced the last moment of it yet. Their lives are essentially over. So they're experiencing a slow death, a death that will come nonetheless. And if you were one of these men, if it could be possible you could imagine being in that situation for just a moment, what kind of thoughts enter your mind in those last moments? Knowing you're going to die, and it's just a matter of a few hours or maybe a day, but it's happening right before your very eyes. You're, you're in a death process, but you're not dead yet. What do you think about? What goes through your mind? I can't pretend to know I would fully understand standing here before you what I would be thinking, but I, I don't think I'd be thinking what the thief that cried out to Jesus was thinking. I don't think I'd be looking at the guy next to me and start insulting him. This seems like a pretty fruitless way to spend those last few hours, doesn't it? It seems almost kind of bizarre when you think about it. At least for one of these men, his thoughts, though, do turn to taunting Jesus. And what he's doing here is he's mimicking the crowd. Remember, this is not an original thought on his part. He's listening to what the crowd has been saying to him. Very similar things. Save yourself if you're the Christ. Take yourself down from the cross if you're the Christ. The man is hearing these things and joins in. Now, the irony here just begins to pile up on itself. Because consider that this thief, as he mocked Jesus is asking Jesus to do the very thing that Jesus is actually capable of doing. He says, save us. And that's very much within Jesus' power. More more than just being capable of doing it, Jesus is willing to do it. 
We know that from how he responds to the other thief. He's very willing to save this man. At least in the sense that Jesus is willing to rescue the man spiritually, if not physically. So, the man is asking Jesus to save him, something Jesus is capable and willing to do. But of course, the man doesn't really believe that Jesus can do what he's asking him to do. His comments are clearly spoken in a mocking tone. And in case we had any question about that, Luke removes any doubt in the way he describes it because he says these comments were abuse. Did you see that in the text as I read it? My version says abuse. Some of yours may say blaspheme or blasphemy. That's because the Greek word there is blasphemeo, which is the word for which we get blaspheme. So it's not merely that he's abusing the man. It is he's speaking in a blasphemous way to Christ. So it's clear enough that his intent here is not to actually receive some kind of saving. He doesn't expect it. He's mocking Jesus. So here's this man who's in the process of dying. He knows that he's basically a walking dead man at that point. And so every thought he has at this point ought to be a thought that comes within the context of knowing I'm about to die. This goes back to my first question. What kind of thoughts do you have when you know you're on the road to a death in the very near next few moments? And yet he has no idea just how truly dead he is. Because spiritually, he's been dead his whole life. So here's a man who is spiritually dead, soon to be physically dead, next to the only one who can solve really both of those problems in the long run. He asks him for that very thing, but he doesn't believe he can get it. The irony here begins to really pile up. By the way, all men are just like this thief, at least at some point in their life. All men. All men are equally dead in their trespasses, Paul teaches us in Romans and elsewhere. We're all simply waiting for a day to come when we breathe our last. You are, if you are an unbeliever, on the cross, no less so than this thief. You don't have nails through your arms. Your last day is not so close, perhaps, but then again, who's to say it isn't? And meanwhile, you're on the road to death. It's just a slow death. I've often heard it said that health is just the slowest way to die. So in reality, this man's plight, though it's amplified by his crucifixion, is really just the plight that all unbelievers find themselves in generally. Spiritually dead and on the road to a physical death one day and unaware that both conditions exist. And yet, perhaps aware that Jesus is Jesus, perhaps knowing him by name, perhaps understanding him to be the Messiah. And yet, because they don't believe that he will do what he's prepared to do, they don't receive what they need. So he calls out to Jesus in the words I've already read, and he says, save us, you're the Christ, save us. But he doesn't really believe that he's the Christ, and he doesn't really believe he can be saved, and so consequently, he isn't saved. He says the words, but the meaning of the words escapes him. Now before we look at the second thief, you've got to understand a little bit with me about what you learn, what I learn, what we all learn from this moment. And not just about what happened to him, but about how it relates to our own relationship to Christ or about how it relates to our opportunity to bring others to know the Lord. First, we learn from this thief that the words alone don't save us. We can't say the right words so as to be saved. There is no special combination of magical words that if you get somebody else to repeat them with you, they will be saved. It does not work that way. Just stand back for a moment 
and look at the text without reading into it his tone. Don't consider his mocking nature. Just look at the words by themselves and look what he said. He said, you're the Christ. Save yourself and save us. In a purely objective way, those should have been sufficient words to save the man. He acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. The word Christ there, Christos in the Greek, it literally means the Messiah, the anointed one. He's not just saying you're, you're some good guy, you're some teacher, you're some rabbi. He declares him to be the Messiah. Then he turns around and says, save us. That would be, by anybody's fair definition, a request for salvation. But it didn't work. Isn't that the formula for salvation? Isn't that what we're taught? I mean, how many times have you seen or have you heard people coaching others that they only need to repeat after me? Say this with me. Pray this with me. And then we lead someone to say some prayer with the words we think are the right words. And then when they finish, we're like, welcome to the family of God. Now, is it wrong to do that? No. But what I want you to understand is having said the words does not mean anything if it's not accompanied by a belief in the heart. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So if someone comes to Jesus, he won't turn them away. And all that come to him are those whom the Father has sent to him. So the words alone are meaningless meaningless unless they are accompanied, we are told, by faith. The classic verses to teach that are out of Romans. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in Salvation. Belief is a state of being that differs from the physical act of speaking or confessing. They're different. One act cannot take the place of the other. The act of speaking the words does not take the place of the act of belief in the heart. They are independent, and yet according to Scripture, they must both be there. Words are not equal to belief. Belief is not equal to words, but we need both. They stand apart, and both are expected. To those who would, like this first thief, say the right words when prompted, for example, when you're desperate, you ever heard the phrase, there's no atheist in a foxhole? It's this same sense of desperation. In a moment of desperation, I cry out the words that somewhere somebody told me are the right words, and I hope they have the desired effect. To that person, there is the appearance of salvation by virtue of what they've said, But yet, if they do not carry the belief that goes with those words in their heart, they're not saved. Simple principle. One, though, that we easily forget if we're not careful. But this is the harder one. Likewise, Scripture says that the confession of the mouth results in in salvation. Therefore, out of Scripture, there is an expectation that the one who believes will demonstrate that belief in a public confession. That is an expectation of Scripture. So, we'll talk in personal terms rather than in general terms. Have we spoken meaningless words at some point in our past and yet expected that somehow those meaningless words were going to save us in the end? In inspecting your own life, if that's the experience you relate to in terms of your own salvation moment, I spoke some words some guy or gal told me to speak, but I don't even know what I was saying, then you need to consider what that might mean. Or perhaps 
we've never spoken any words. Perhaps we've never made a public confession of our faith, of our trust in Jesus. We've just assumed that our, that our kind and generous thoughts toward Jesus that we've always held are good enough. Or perhaps we've thought that associating with Christians or attending church on a regular basis or Bible studies or whatever, that just goes enough to prove our good intentions. That should be good enough to prove who we are. We've never had to actually speak that to anybody and publicly confess our belief in Christ. Or then again, maybe the requirement to confess with our mouth was intended to expose exactly that kind of ambivalence among the faithful or the pretenders. You ever consider that? Maybe the reason the Scripture is so adamant about the need to confess with our mouth is that it's intended to shed light on who truly has the faith they claim. So that there is a defining moment, a separation, if you will, a chance for the believer to separate themselves out from others by a demonstrative act, something that is clear to the world that says unambiguously, I'm in the club, so to speak. I, I agree with the Christian message. I believe in the gospel and I'm willing to state it publicly. Finally, he reminds us not to be so determined to see someone come to faith in Christ that we inadvertently try to lower the bar for admission into the family of God. What do I mean by lowering the bar? Well, if we lead someone to think they're saved because they repeat a prayer without also taking time to determine if they agree with the beliefs that are behind those words, then all we're doing is giving them false comfort. Because what we've told them is, these words save you. Rather than, God saves you, does the belief in your heart confirm that you've been saved? And can you speak those back, that belief back to me? I'll give you a simple rule of thumb as we move to the second cross, or the second thief. A person who speaks a confession without holding to the faith is merely fooling others. And a person who assumes that they have the faith, but never speaks the confession, is merely fooling themselves. I pray we're neither, but rather one who holds to the faith and has been bold enough to speak it to others. And thankfully, God in His infinite wisdom gave us a second thief. Because though the first thief gives us some important lessons on the nature of salvation and on the importance of belief accompanying our words, the second thief, by what he says, answers more Christian doctrine in so few words than any other verses I can find you in the Bible. When the other thief, the second thief, hears the words of the first thief, he quickly joins the conversation, according to Luke, and he rebukes the first thief. He says that the man who just spoke to Jesus, this first thief, should fear God because he's under the same sentence of condemnation. It's a fascinating statement. Think about what he just said to this man. Here's this man, this, this first thief, who's been on the cross. He joins in with the crowd's mocking of Jesus. In use of his last few hours of life, that's how he decides to spend them. But unlike the crowd, the man is on the cross. You know, it's one thing for the crowd to mock Jesus. They get to go back to their regular life. This man... He's hours from death, and he knows it, and he's mocking Jesus. So you would think that his fear of God would be at its height because he's under the same sentence of condemnation that Jesus is under, and therefore, he's only hours from meeting God. Knowing you're only hours from meeting God, you would think that the fear of God would be upon you. If ever, any time, it would be then. So this second thief looks at this guy and says, you know, I, I wouldn't talk like that if I were you. Look where you are. You, you know, have you noticed? You know, you're going, to the, you're going somewhere pretty soon, and, and when you get there, 
you know, you, you're going to want to be remembered for saying this stuff right before you show up. You know, think about it. You know, that's kind of the, the, what he's saying here. You're under the same sentence of condemnation. What are you saying? But the statement goes a step further in my mind because it suggests that that second thief, by what he told the first thief, he sees this man's statements as offensive to God. That's implied, right? He's warning the guy, Yosh, you shouldn't say that. You're about to go meet God. Don't you have a fear of that? Which tells me he thinks that the man's statements should offend God and that's enough to be afraid about. Well, why would you think those statements are going to offend God unless you believe in the testimony of that man, of Jesus? Unless you believe in his testimony to be God and to be sent from God and to be from the Father, unless you believe that, you'd have no reason to think that the man's statements are a problem. On the other hand, if you do believe Jesus' confession, then it makes perfect sense to turn to that first thief and say, shut your mouth, you're about to reach God and he's not going to be happy with what you just said about his son. That's built in to his comment. He knows who Jesus is. And if you have any doubt about that, look at the rest of the second thief's statements to Jesus. He says to the first thief again, he says, we are guilty and suffering rightly, but Jesus is innocent. This man declares Jesus' innocence, which is a continuation of what we've seen in Luke's Gospel up to this point. Pilate declared Jesus' innocence. Obviously, others have come alongside and declared his innocence. We'll see that happen even again after the death. And here again, the thief says Jesus is innocent. So therefore, he says, while we're sitting on the cross here suffering for our mistakes, Jesus must be suffering for someone else's mistakes. Now, he didn't say that, but I want you to see how that becomes part of the conversation. He says to the man, we are suffering justly for what we did wrong. There's a relationship there. Those who did wrong are the same ones who should suffer for their wrong. Yet this man is kind of, he's got the suffering part, but he doesn't have the, the guilt part. So there's a guilt missing. It's like two halves to, to, to a puzzle. I have the suffering because I have the guilt. But Jesus has the suffering and there's no guilt. So there's like a piece open in the puzzle. Meaning, I can plug somebody else's guilt in there in place of what he himself lacked. So it's substitutionary atonement. Now, I'm not saying that the thief had that doctrinal concept on his mind and he was expressing his entire thesis of doctrine on the cross. He didn't need to know all that. God didn't expect him to. God gave him words to speak that had meaning of their own. But the point is, what he's declaring to this other thief and to Christ and to the world is, we have reason to be here, he doesn't, which begs the question, why is he there? And he's there for your sin and mine, rather than for his own. Finally, he makes a request to Jesus. He says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Now, he isn't asking, I want you to know what this statement means, because it's easy sometimes to get lost in the, in the language. He isn't asking Jesus, he's not saying, make note of me. He's not saying like, you know, one day, Jesus, when you reach your kingdom and you're walking down the street, I'd like you to just, you know, in a moment say, gee, I wonder whatever happened to that thief. You know, it's not like just remember me so that one day I'll be you know, known. And he's saying, consider me as someone you'd be willing to bring with you into the kingdom. When you're making up your list of guests, when you're deciding who you're going to invite into the kingdom, remember me on that list. Bring me with you is clearly what he's asking. It's a specific request to be with Jesus in the future kingdom, which to a Jew meant only one place, what we would call heaven. It's the place those who were faithful to their Lord would be received after their death. That was the Jewish kingdom of the Messiah that all Jews looked forward to being a part of on the assumption they would be ushered into that kingdom. 
So in contrast to what the first thief said, the second thief basically gives a biblically correct confession of faith. A confession of faith sufficient to be saved. Look what that confession consisted of. Number one, he recognized that how you respond to Jesus, the Son of God, is of utmost importance to God. In the way he rebuked that first thief, he's teaching us that God cares how you treat His Son. How you respond to His Son matters to God. In fact, it will be the defining difference in how God treats you. Secondly, he acknowledges his own sin. He acknowledges he was sinful and justly deserved death. Third, he recognized Jesus' own sinlessness and therefore that Jesus' death on the cross must have been a penalty paid for sins of others, for someone other than himself. So he recognized that Jesus, in what he did, made available a salvation to those who would, would, allow, would allow him to stand in their place, to take the penalty in their place. And finally, he made a specific appeal to Jesus to be rescued, not on the basis of his own merits, but on the basis of Jesus' mercy. It was not an appeal in the sense of, hey, I've done a lot of good things. Would you save me for doing them, please? Would you acknowledge my worth before you? And would you reward me for all my hard work? And would you let me come into the kingdom? No, he says, I'm the sinner on the cross. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? Which is, in that culture, to say that to someone is essentially an appeal for mercy and grace. It's a way of saying, I don't have any reason to expect your invitation. I'm just asking you, would you grant me one? So he acknowledged that Jesus was the way. He acknowledged he was sinful and could not earn his own salvation. He acknowledged that Jesus on the cross made opportunity for him and he requested specifically that Jesus would save him. Those are the basic essential elements of a true confession. When the man says, would you remember me? Jesus, as we read, said, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, paradise we've taught in here in the past, I believe. It's a term that literally means in the presence of the Lord. So paradise is wherever Jesus is. In the day today, if you and I were to die or when we die, we will be in the Lord's presence in the throne room, in in the heavenly throne room. That's paradise. That's heaven. That's in His presence. But we also know from Scripture that there is a future day when He comes back to earth to reign on earth for a thousand years. When He returns to this planet and He reigns for a thousand years, us with Him, are you in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. You are in Christ's presence, glorified in your new created body. That's heaven. By definition, you're in Christ's presence. And then we're told after that thousand year reign that God will burn this entire earth with fire and replace it with a brand new earth, a new heaven as well, and that the holy Jerusalem that is in heaven now, the new Jerusalem, will descend down and occupy this new world that's created and God will rule from His throne on this new world and us with Him and Jesus as well and that will be heaven. Heaven is where Jesus is. That's where I want to be. And that's what paradise is for this man in this moment, to accompany Jesus to the throne room upon His uh, ascension. It's no wonder to me that the story of the second thief has a unique place in the biblical record because it stands as a testimony against countless numbers of false doctrines and wrong teaching. Would you teach me that I must keep the law to be saved? If you do, I will point to the thief on the cross as the epitome of lawbreaker. Would you teach me that I must be baptized to be saved? 
If you do, I will point to the thief on the cross who never went down into the water. Would you teach me that I must perform a certain work to be saved? If you do, I'll point to the thief on the cross whose only work was the labored breathing he did on the way to his death. Would you teach me that I must speak in tongues to be saved? You do that and I'll point to the thief who never spoke beyond the simple words of his confession. Would you try to teach me that I must belong to a certain denomination or that I must participate in a special ritual or that I must attend a certain class or acquire to a certain kind of secret knowledge or meet some certain test or strive in any way at all in order to be saved? To you, I would say witness the thief on the cross, a sinner who did nothing more than believe in his heart and confess with his mouth that Jesus was Lord and was saved. Thank the Lord for the second thief, my friends, because if it had not been for the second thief, there are countless errors of doctrine that men, whether intentionally or otherwise, could have foisted upon the church over the last centuries and said, you must do these things to be a a Christian. You must be baptized in a certain church. You must believe in certain teachings of certain men. You must kiss certain rings. You must do certain things or you are not saved. To those people we can turn and say, the thief on the cross and know that our salvation is secure by our confession alone. Luke records that that day reaches the sixth hour as we pick up now in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. When Luke says that it's the sixth hour, he's using the Jewish way of reckoning the hours of the day, meaning it was uh, noon at this point in the day. Noon, we're told, therefore, the world went dark. Some have argued it was local only. I really wouldn't know how you could determine that. The Scripture only says that the sun was darkened. My personal view is that the world went dark and lasted that way for three hours. The word dark, as Matthew records it, which is a little different word than the one Luke uses, is a word that kind of, in its most literal translation in Greek, it means a heavy darkness, uh, sort of like a spiritual darkness. It's not the same word you would use for nightfall. It reflects a different kind of feeling, a different kind of darkness. So without any additional explanation, I think we can immediately draw at least one conclusion from that fact regarding the meaning of this event. The world is growing dark because of God's judgment and displeasure being made manifest to the creation in this moment. Now, there are many examples in Scripture where God's judgment is displayed in very much the same way, through a darkening of the sun. I could take you through countless verses out of the Old Testament, some in the day, some prophetic of a future day. But the significance of that fact here is important for us to appreciate because this is not merely a sign so as to impress the audience in the moment that, hey, by the way, this is Jesus. Check it out. Look what I did to the sun. Or... Hey, I'm not very happy right now. I'm going to make the sun go black so that you all know that. No, that's not the point here at all. Let me take you back to the beginning of the Bible for just a moment. In Genesis chapter 1, we learn that light and dark were created even before the sun and the moon existed. There was light and there was dark before there was a sun and moon. In Revelation 21, going to the other side of the Bible, not coincidentally, by the way, We learn that in the new heaven and earth, we will not have need for a sun or a moon because all the light for that future world comes from the Lord Himself who resides with us, who lives with us. 
Those two facts, the fact that the world had light before it had the sun, and the fact that the future world we will live in will have light without a sun, leaves us to conclude that the existence of light is independent of the existence of any object God may create to produce the light. God has given us physical light produced by a sun, yes, but He's given it to us in that way as a representation of His own light, a light you and I cannot bear to see currently because of our sin nature, for to be in the presence of that light would be judgment to those of us with sin. So He has given us a representation of His light in the form of a physical object as an interim step, as a stopgap measure, as something to bridge the gap between the day Adam was created and the day you and I will be with Him again in a sinless nature. Which suggests one thing, that when the light leaves the earth here in this moment, it is not simply the physical loss of light on the earth, it is the literal moment that the Father separates Himself from His Son for the very, very first time. For the first time in all of eternity and all of creation, the Father and the Son are no longer one in the sense that the Father has forsaken the Son in the same way that Adam must have been put out of the garden. He was separated from the Father's fellowship, from the Father's love for three hours we're told the light went away. The earth was dark. Three hours that must have felt like an eternity to a Jesus who in all of eternity had never experienced it before. He experienced the kind of separation that everyone, you and I included, were born into because of our own sin. But Jesus, being sinless, having been with the Father since the beginning, is now experiencing it for the first time. And I, can only, I can't even imagine how dreadful that must have been for Jesus to experience that moment. In Matthew's Gospel, we get a sense from Jesus' own words of just how bad that dread was in that moment when Jesus ex exclaims in Matthew 27, verse 46, In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabagatani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at the end of that three hours, near the end of that darkness, at this time when the Father has forsaken the Son, He cries out in desperation over that separation that He's feeling. And it, it, in fact, as I read those words, it makes me wonder if this part of the ordeal was perhaps something that, that even Jesus Himself didn't or couldn't anticipate. The moment of this ordeal, of this separation, was something so unknowable, even to Jesus, for He had never experienced it before, that He had no precedent. He had nothing on which to base His knowledge on. That when it finally occurred, it was a shock to him. At least in the sense that he had not been able to prepare for it. And so he cries out in a way that I think really reflects how serious it must have been. He asks the Father, why you forsaken me? I don't think it's an act. I don't think he knows. And then we hear that he dies. I said last week I wanted to talk at least a little about crucifixion and I saved it for this week because this is the moment in which the death occurs Crucifixion, by the way, was, was such a painful death, not because of what you and I probably think most about. The nails, right? That's the thing that catches your attention, obviously, the thought of a, a nail going through our body. What could be more painful? And certainly it would have been, no doubt. But that wasn't the most painful part of the death, not even close. Think about it. Your arms are above your head for a long period of time. You've already lost a lot of blood. There's probably not much feeling in your arms at that point. Uh, the very feeling is gone for the most part. No, the real effects of it are in how it left the condemned man struggling to combat the effects of the punishment. 
as He was hanging on the cross. As that body is raised up, the weight of that body pulls against those arms in an unnatural way because they're so spread apart. And so almost immediately, the, shoulder, the, sol- the shoulders are pulled out of socket. I had my shoulder dislocated when I was in college wrestling. The most painful thing I can remember. For the hours it took them to finally put my shoulder back into socket, it's just unimaginable how painful that is. I can't imagine having both pulled out and then hanging from them for hours. So not only is that pain unbearable, but the person can't breathe in that position. Because of the way the body is distended, the diaphragm cannot operate to pull air into the lungs because it's being stretched apart. It can't contract in the proper way to pull, to pull in air. So what the person will do is hang in that position basically without the ability to breathe until the point of suffocation reaches that last moment where like, like when you're underwater and you can't hold your breath any longer. And so at that moment, out of sheer reflex, the prisoner will push up against the nails in their feet with their legs to lift their body's weight just enough to get a breath in and then fall back down. And this will go on for hours. That's the suffering. But of course, as you've pushed up now to try to get a breath, the pain in the feet overwhelms, and so you have to stop pushing. And at that point, you relive the pain in your arms again as you get hung down again by your arms, and over and over and over. Writings of that day say that the sour vinegar wine, which we've already heard, was offered to Jesus. The reason that was by the cross was because it had become commonplace for those who witnessed an execution to keep this vinegar nearby with a sponge, because vinegar, this vinegar wine was an astringent. If you don't know what an astringent is, it's anything that shrinks mucous membranes in the body, closes things up, forces your, dries out and, and closes up your membranes. The whole point in having it was that they would offer it to these prisoners who were so parched and dehydrated they'd drink anything you gave them. But the effect of it was actually kind of cruel because what it did was it constricted the throat, made it even harder to breathe and to talk. The reason they did it was to silence the screams of the men because it was so hard to listen to. So in order to silence the painful screams of these men as they hung for hours on the cross, they would be forced or offered to drink this, which most of them did just because when you're that thirsty, you'll take anything, not even thinking about what it's doing to you. All this process went on for hours, even days. Some men would take several days to die in this state, usually from dehydration, which brought its own kind of torture. But if people listening and watching this wanted to hasten the death, what they would do is they would break the legs of the prisoner because as soon as I broke the legs, I didn't have the ability now to push my body up anymore. And when I couldn't push my body up anymore, it was only a matter of a short time before they'd die of suffocation. So you could basically accelerate the death to a few minutes if you broke the legs. Some prisoners would cry out with that request in mercy, please break my legs so that I might die faster. So when we hear Jesus crying out in this moment with this loud voice, he's actually doing something quite remarkable given his condition. First, you look at the words he used here. He gives a clear reference to an Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. Because in the words he uses, he speaks about something that was written many centuries earlier. Many centuries before this event ever took place, God gave us a description of how he would accomplish the redemption of us through his anointed one. And specifically, he gave us this picture in the Psalms. Now, Psalms were written by David and others centuries before crucifixion had even been invented. So we're looking here at works of writing written by men who had never witnessed a crucifixion and did not even know of the idea. Turning with me, if you will, to chapter or to uh, number 22 Psalm, if you have the opportunity to turn there, let me read you the first 18 verses of that Psalm. And I want you to look at the description that David writes in that psalm 
a man who never witnessed crucifixion and knew nothing of it. Verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with their lips. They wag their heads saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breasts. And until you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open their mouth wide at me as a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaw, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. It's a remarkable prophetic picture, isn't it? Now, many of you knew that prophetic psalm already, I'm sure, but in light of what we've studied in the Gospel so far at this point with the crucifixion at the focus tonight, can you see how clearly God spoke to the Old Testament faithful through His Word, even about His Son and about His coming crucifixion, and about details that could never have been coincidental by men who had no concept of crucifixion. It must be the Word of God, and it must be by the hand of God that it was written to give us the knowledge we need to know who our Messiah is. And in Jesus' words, O God, O God, why have you forsaken me? He calls to mind specifically this psalm so that there could be no doubt about how it relates to the moment He was suffering in and how it points to Him. Luke also mentions in the verses we read that at this moment of Jesus' death, the veil was torn in two. Matthew adds that the tear began at the top and proceeded to the ground. Josephus describes this veil in the following way. He says it was 82 and a half feet in height, an 82 foot high veil. It was 24 feet in width and 3 inches thick, woven, solid, woven veil. It was so heavy that it hung from a beam over the door that itself weighed about 30 tons. When it was ripped, it sent this unmistakable message of what Jesus' death meant. Where once men depended on priests to intercede for them before God inside the temple, now we know by, by virtue of God's actions on that day that all men now have the opportunity for direct access to the throne room if they accept the Messiah's sacrifice on their behalf. That now became available to those who saw his death for what it was. God had removed the veil that separated men from him so, so, much, or so long as they accepted God's sacrifice through his Son. There is some writings to suggest that this veil was not the inner veil of the Holy of Holies, though some assume it to be that, but rather the outer veil. Because remember, in the way the temple was constructed, you had the, out, the outside court of the Gentiles, followed by an inner court of women, followed by the temple itself, 
followed by the Holy of Holies inside the temple or inside the holy place. So there's a sectioning off as you go deeper into the building. But the only ones who could enter into the building proper, into the holy place, were the priests. Yes, only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies, but only priests could enter into the holy place. No, no mere man could go in regularly into God's temple, into the normal holy place, much less the holy of holies. And there was a veil over the holy of holies, yes, but there was also a veil over the temple itself, over those outer doors that led you into the temple proper, into the holy place where priests went. And if this veil is one that was witnessed as having torn from the top to the bottom, the only ones who could have ever seen it, had it been the inner one, would have been the priests themselves. But if it were the outer one, the whole world would have seen it. And in fact, writings out of the Jewish Talmud of the day and some of the historical texts of that day, including Josephus' own writings, tell us that in about A.D. 30, or approximately 40 years before A.D. 70, there was an earthquake on the Temple Mount, resulting in a number of specific things happening. The veil was ripped because the 30-ton beam that held it snapped because of the earthquake, resulting in the tear. Secondly, mysteriously and by their own accord, the Temple doors swung open, which would have been the doors into the Holy Place, not the Holy of Holies. Secondly, the, or thirdly, the court within the temple that the Sanhedrin used to conduct trials was forever destroyed and was never rebuilt before A.D. 70. So they never conducted another trial after the one that they used to convict Jesus by in that place. There were also, of course, other effects within the, the city because of the earthquake. But those are three that are specifically mentioned in Jewish writings of the day. Which leads many to conclude that the veil we're looking at here is more likely that outer one. One that was so huge it could have been seen from the Mount of Olives hanging over the doors of the temple proper. And then we're told in the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m., Jesus breathes his last, crying out in a loud voice, commending his spirit to the Father. And again, in that statement, he fulfills another prophecy out of the Old Testament. In Psalms 31, verse 1, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. And into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. Again, in the Psalms, we see prophetically a statement about Jesus' commanding or committing of His Spirit into the Father. But not just a single phrase. The whole context of that psalm is one of, I have been, uh, a trap has been laid for me. Someone has done something to me and I depend on you, not on them. Rescue me. Which is, of course, what the Father did. The Greek word for the way Jesus cries this out, when He says He cries out with a loud voice, the Greek word for loud is megas. You might get megaphone from that same word. Which is striking. His throat here is going to be incredibly dry after the time he spent on the cross. He has been given a little of this vinegar wine, so it probably only went further to make it hard for him to speak. Now we hear him crying out in this specific way. On Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement under the Jewish calendar, the high priest of Israel was required to call out the holy name of God, Yahweh. Something many people don't realize is though it was inappropriate for any Jew to ever speak God's name, which is why they wrote it without putting any vowels in it so that it couldn't be spoken, 
it was required that the high priest say it and say it in a very loud voice at the point of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the only time of the year, the only place and time that God's name could ever be spoken. And according to Jewish writings of the day, when the high priest spoke that name in that moment, his voice was supernaturally empowered so that it was so loud that the entire multitude of Israel could hear it throughout the city. It would reverberate off the walls of the hills around the city. And they looked at that as God's supernatural empowering of the high priest so that he could speak his own name, God's name, in such a powerful way on that moment of atonement when the nation's sins were covered for that moment by that one sacrifice. So here it is again. Our high priest, his voice echoing supernaturally through the valley and in the city and probably heard by the entire city, which explains the reaction that comes next in the text. Because the very next verse we see in Luke 23 is this. In verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away, which is a classic Jewish way of declaring sorrow and, and, and angst, of, of saying something was just done that was wrong, of, of like mourning over something. And then in verse 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. A Roman centurion who presumably was the man officiating the crucifixion, that would have been the role of a centurion in that moment. So he's sort of the guy in charge. He sees these events. Now, what would he have seen? Well, we know he's seen a darkened sky for three hours, supernaturally such. He hears this supernaturally loud cry Jesus makes to the Father. And if we know what Mark and Matthew teach in their Gospel, we know that this same moment was accompanied by earthquakes. And those three events combined lead to this man praising God and declaring Jesus to be righteous. I don't think his response would be our expected result unless all of those events seemed outside the norm. In other words, Jesus' voice, louder than a normal man's voice, booming in a way that's supernatural. The sky, not dark like an eclipse. These people weren't ignorant. They knew what an eclipse was. That happened in their day just like it happens in our day. This is different. This is something unexplainable. And earthquakes all timed perfectly to those events. You put the three together and it made an impression. This is a notable moment that created a kind of response that can't be explained by anything else. It seems that Jesus' prayer, remember His prayer on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It seems that that prayer may have been answered here for a few people, for the centurion, who apparently has come to know Jesus for who he really is. And then to the crowd. We hear of this crowd as they leave, likewise, beating their breast. What do we know that means? Well, it could mean many things, but perhaps for at least some it meant a recognition of who Jesus really was. And then lastly, there are those who are closest to Jesus, the women who had been with him up to this point, watching from a distance. This fleeting reference to the women is important, at least because these are the ones who have been so diligent to remain with Jesus through this whole ordeal. They're the ones intent on seeing it through. As we go into the text again next week, they're going to be the ones who pick up the pieces to some extent, who come alongside Jesus in the end. And I want you to look at the scene as Luke paints it, as we finish tonight. Luke describes this scene... Something like how you would picture the scene through the camera of a movie. As he focuses first on the centurion next to the cross. And then as he begins to pan back 
drawing your view backward. Finally, you catch a glimpse of the crowd as they walk away. And then he begins to retreat the camera image further back still to the point now where you see the women perhaps standing a hill or so away, gazing on Jesus from a distance. And the cross becomes smaller and smaller in that view. That's how Luke paints the picture. And that's how we're going to leave Jesus tonight. Hanging, lifeless, on a cross, having declared it is finished. Our debt is paid in full. And we will come back next week. Let's go to prayer. Father, we praise You and praise You again that our debt is paid in full. Father, knowing that Jesus suffered so much begins to explain how much we owed. And Father, You tell us in Your Gospel, to Him who is forgiven much will love much. Father, I do pray that's our reaction, that that is our response. That beyond anything we've learned, any, any knowledge we've gained, some fact that we can carry away and teach to others, beyond any of that, Father, I pray that what we take away is an appreciation of how much we owed. And therefore, Father, how much we are to love. First and foremost, You, and then our neighbor as ourself, so that in that love, Father, they may know that we are Yours. And in so knowing they might become like us. Father, we praise You that You've given us an opportunity to work in that way by Your Holy Spirit in us. To do that work in ourselves, Father, and then to be the instrument through whom You might work in others. We thank You, Lord, for that opportunity. And I praise You for this study, Father. I praise You for Luke, for the man who was so diligent to record these events in the way he did, Father, and for Your great work to bring this Word to us over the years and over the many thousands of lives that made it possible. Let us never forget that sacrifice. And Father, we praise You that Your love extends even to this moment to the bringing of the Word to us now. We pray, Father, that as we come close to the end of the study in the weeks to come, You'd you'd guide us to that end and Your will and according to Your timing and that we'd be faithful to study it along the way and that You would bring others to join us if that be Your will. Just grow us according to Your desires, Father, and let us return if we may. And I thank You for this night. In Jesus' name, Amen.